You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and I'll just say it, I wasn't expecting to be back quite so soon. Finishing this first season of the show has been such an amazing experience, and my producer and I have been hard at work brainstorming for season two. And truth be told, I was enjoying my version of a little break, by which I mean I was only working on my other four full-time jobs, trying to make our film slate more diverse and inclusive in my day job, serving on the Alliance Young Professionals Board, serving low-income kids and their families, and being a wife and a mother. But once again, and as always, white supremacy never takes a vacation, so I guess we can't either. There are times when it feels overwhelming to really contend with the constant onslaught of white supremacy in our culture. Whether it's the trial of Derek Chauvin, the policeman who murdered George Floyd, a case that actually returned a guilty verdict for once, something that most of us can barely remember happening. But we have to remember that even that is just accountability, not yet justice. Justice would be not having to say the names Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, and Makia Bryant so quickly after as hashtags, just three more lives lost to police violence, two of which were teenagers under 16 years old. Or the reason that I'm back at the mic now, which is a spike in violence and discrimination against Asians and Asian Americans. But as I always remind people, just because we can't do everything to dismantle white supremacy does not free us to do nothing. So here I am, back at the mic, trying to do my little part in helping us have the conversations that we need in order to advance racial justice. Because let's be clear, what is happening to Asians and Asian American people in our country is not okay. Having to see stories that we've seen over the last few months of elderly Asian grandmothers being mugged or beaten, young Asian women being shot at point-blank range, and of course, six Asian women and a total of eight people overall working at a massage parlor massacred by a white man who said he was just having a really bad day, but he promises wasn't racist at all. All of this has been heartbreaking. I've heard firsthand the grief and anger in my friends' voices, talking about how fearful they are just leaving their homes and wondering whether or not to advise their parents to buy a weapon to stay safe. None of this is okay. And while this podcast season has centered stories around the Black experience and anti-Blackness in our society specifically, the goal is anti-racism and effective allyship, and that applies to all of us. This goal is universal because white supremacy attacks all people of color for the purpose of advancing and elevating whiteness, period. And white people, you sit at the center of it all, whether you intend to or not. We need to talk about this because our white supremacist society is content to crush the rest of us to preserve you and your culture. So I want to do more than just add my voice to the growing chorus of voices saying enough is enough and saying stop Asian hate. I also want to bring some nuance to the conversation because in the face of a few of the recorded incidents of violence being committed by young Black men, an age-old tension around cross-racial solidarity has surfaced and specifically around the dynamics between the Black and the Asian community in America. And of course, it is happening, as always, without nuance, when there is so much nuance that is needed in order for us to have this conversation. So I want to ground us in a few facts. First of all, this is not new. The violence and racism that we're seeing now in this moment, sparked by the former president's penchant to call the COVID pandemic the China virus or Kung flu, but that's not new. 
there is a very long, painful, and barely told story of anti-Asian violence and discrimination in our country. One that has roots in the earliest Asian immigrants to our country being attacked and targeted for quote-unquote stealing jobs. Have you heard that one before? Leading to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, an immigration policy that barred Chinese people and really all Asian people from entering the country for quite a long time. Stretching all the way to the Japanese internment of World War II and much more. If you think that this is new, it's really time to get a clue. Fast. Second, Though we have seen a few devastating and despicable videos of Black men attacking Asian people in our country, 95% of the violence that we've been seeing in this time is not committed by Black people. And 90% of that 95% are perpetrated by white people. As always, this is a white supremacy problem, and the numbers support that. The third thing I want to note. Though there have been instances of tensions between Black and Asian communities in our country's history, that is not the sum total and the full story of Black and Asian interaction and connection in our country. And those tensions also have their roots in white supremacy. Largely via the model minority myth created by a white man named William Peterson, which was constructed in many ways to keep Asians in their place and to tell Black people that they were inferior. None of this is accidental. We are being intentionally pitted against one another. And the fourth is that the solidarity of marginalized groups is critical to advancing racial justice. We have a common enemy and it is not each other. That is yet another one of the lies of white supremacy and one that we have to rise above and see beyond. This work, this work of cross-racial solidarity is not optional. We will not be able to make progress on our own. So in order to unpack all of this, I've invited some really incredible guests to join us today. First, Marla Talia. Marla is a first-generation Mexican woman living in the unceded territories of Hahamogna tribe, a branch of the Tagva nation, in what is present-day Los Angeles. Her family is indigenous to this land by way of Tijuana and San Jose del Cabo, Mexico. Marla has dedicated her life to creating safe, sacred space for Black, Indigenous, and women of color to heal, lead, and rise. She is the CEO and founder of Culture Shift Agency, a consulting and coaching firm that works with individuals and organizations to activate their personal agency to create inclusive systems and practices that elevate BIPOC leadership and minimize harm. And she also happens to be my career coach, and I can say that everything in her bio is actually being done every day in my life. Next, I'm excited to introduce my friend and former colleague, Kim Trinh. Kim is the youngest daughter of two Vietnamese refugees and a lifelong advocate for youth, women of color, and diversity. In addition to leading social for public figures, entertainment brands, and social good for the Facebook app, Kim serves on the inaugural Inclusion and Representation Lens Panel, focused on uplifting race and culture authentically through all outbound advertising campaigns. She is the embodiment of a co-conspirator and a practitioner daily of cross-racial solidarity and advocacy. And finally, we are beyond privileged to have Dr. Jennifer Ho with us today. Dr. Ho is the daughter of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica whose own parents were themselves immigrants from Hong Kong. She is the director of the Center for Humanities and the Arts at the University of Colorado, Boulder, where she also holds an appointment as professor of ethnic studies. She is the president of the Association for Asian American Studies and the author of three scholarly monographs, several academic articles and book chapters, and public-facing pieces addressing the intersections of race, sex, and class in Asian America. She is a force to be reckoned with. Dr. Ho, Marla, and Kim, welcome, welcome, welcome to From Woke to Work. How are you, ladies? Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So excited to speak with you all today. Absolutely. I can't believe I was able to lock down three powerhouses at the same time. So without further ado, I just want to get into it. I don't love a long lead-in, as my listeners know. So a couple of weeks ago, I saw an Instagram post that really stopped me in my tracks. It was one of those multi-image carousels, and the first one said, 
Why is it so hard to stand with Asian Americans? I'll admit, the simplicity of it convicts you immediately. Because despite how clear it is that anti-Asian racism is raging, so many of us seem unable or unsure in just naming it as such. And then saying the words, stop Asian hate. Anti-Asian racism has been surging since the president who shall not be named started blaming Chinese people for a global pandemic. But only recently have I started to see it become a social movement and a movement in the media really espoused and talked about by Asian and non-Asian people alike. So what took us so long as a country to speak up about this and how did we get here? Dr. Ho, I'd like to start with you and then Kim, I'd love your take as well. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I think that you gave a really great intro in saying that this this isn't new. From the moment that Asian immigrants came to the United States, there has been anti-Asian racism. And it just so happened that it was Chinese immigrants first coming in the mid-19th century. But pretty much every Asian ethnic group that has been here has had some form of anti-Asian or anti-Pacific Islander racism leveled at them. So I think to answer your question in terms of why is there media attention now, I mean, sadly, it's because the violence that Asian Americans and to some degree Pacific Islanders are experiencing is so acute and fatal now with the Atlanta shootings. But it's really crucial to understand that the way that white supremacy has operated and impacted Asian Americans really flies in the face of the model minority myth of this idea that somehow Asians are for all intents and purposes white. That's something that I heard a lot when I lived in the U.S. South. And the truth is that Asians in America and Pacific Islanders are subject to white supremacy like many other non-white people. Yeah, absolutely. Kim, what would you add? I think it's really interesting and, and just so important to start with your point about how You saw this on Instagram, and I think that it really just reminds me of how much cultural appropriation happens to play into this, because if you scroll your feeds, it's pretty likely that you'll see models doing fox eyes with their eyeliner, or you might see an artist wearing an aoyai from Vietnamese culture, and we have been so deeply ingrained in what is considered beautiful, but not considered in terms of our pain as human beings, and that's just part of being in the Asian culture. I think Steve Yoon's put this really beautifully. It was quote to something to the effect of, I wonder if the Asian experience is the idea that you're always thinking of others, but no one's thinking of you. And I think that Dr. Ho made a beautiful point. It all comes back to the model minority. We were waiting for our pain to feel posh, to become that cause du jour. And it's always going to be a matter of keeping us obedient and ensuring that if we knew that we were important enough to have an opinion that should be heard, we would become too loud for white supremacy to be able to drown us out. And it's so painful to say, but it continues to be something that just reverberates throughout every day. Yeah, completely. Thinking again about that post that I mentioned, the next thing that it unpacked was exactly kind of what both you and Dr. Ho touched on, which is the model minority myth. This idea that Asian people are good. There's no problem here. Everything's going great for them. It's the rest of you guys that need to catch up. And I remember reading that post. I was like, whoa, I was today years old when I realized and learned that this was a concept popularized by a white man, which of course it was. I just didn't know his name. You know, Marla, though you didn't create the post, I saw it on your feed. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what moved you to share it and how you feel like you have either internalized or understood the model minority myth as a Latina woman in the U.S. And what does it mean to you and your community? Yeah, thank you so much. I do want to amplify the folks who made the post, right? Because I I saw it and I definitely, it stopped me in my tracks as well. And when I dove a little deeper, it was based from a multiracial coalition who was working on an educational packet before Atlanta happened. And so I just want to name the folks. It was Dr. Kiana. Her Instagram is how to not travel like a basic bitch. Hiking Prodigy, that's their Instagram handle. CJ Golding, the Instagram handle Curls of Poetry and the Instagram handle Patagonia. And so I just want to amplify that because that that came to my feed as well, right? And when I what made me stop 
And I had to reread the cover image multiple times to say, are they really saying that they're getting that it's hard to stand with Asian Americans? Like, is that what I'm hearing? And so, and then I scrolled, right? And I I saw the 10 images that were really powerful. And for me, as somebody who's a Mexican woman, first gen, I was raised right by the border, four miles away. And I went to school in Imperial Beach, which is like the most southwesterly city in the United States. And I was raised with Filipinos and Mexicans, right? So like my upbringing was very much a brown and Asian upbringing. There were a few African-Americans, there were a few white folks, but pretty much it was it was Latino and Asian. And so as somebody who is first gen, I understand deeply what it's like to be an immigrant, even though I'm the first one born here. My family is an immigrant family. And so I understand deeply what it means, the pressures that you feel around assimilation, the pressures that you try to connect to whiteness, the pressures that you're like, education is when it's going to get you out, right? So I deeply understand that. And when I went to college is when my own politicization started, right? And I really started to understand the nuance and then also experience such difference from the folks that I was raised with, because then I went to Berkeley, right? And it was very very, very multicultural. And I started seeing how that model minority myth was playing out that was a level of separation, that was a level of we're better than you, right? There was that tension. And so when I saw the post, coincidentally, maybe the week before, I coached many women of color and had received a few texts and emails like, I'm really triggered by the Stop Asian Hate campaign because I've experienced so much vitriol and like I have empathy and yes, it's wrong. And then I have to say I'm triggered because as a black woman, I have experienced such intensity in our relationships, right? Had we only, you know, not been speeding, had we only not been having drugs that are, had we not given a fake dollar bill, we would have survived, right? And so that was the tension that I was holding for my clients, right? And so to be able to then see that image come up and acknowledge, oh, there might be something hard about standing with us made me want to double click and go in deeper. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. You know, that first question, just the simplicity of it and just really sitting with the truth of like, wait, is it hard? Why is it hard? Who is it hard for? And who is that really serving? Why why is society structured in a way that would make it hard at all for us to do this very obvious thing, which is, you know, stand against injustice, which especially for people of color, we're like, well, that's the thing we do. I know what that is. But, you know, it's been such a difficult year for so many groups in our country that I think there is this feeling sometimes of like, wait, is the page turning and now like nobody cares about my problems anymore? Are they going to forget about me in this? And the what about, what about, what about is a thing that I feel like has been so effectively used in our society to divide us because there is a feeling of like, you know, white society has such a limited attention span. And so if they're not talking about black people anymore, then we're forgotten. And now they're talking about this other group. And we're just fighting over that tiny slice of of attention, as opposed to realizing that we should have access to the full pie, as opposed to sort of, you know, fighting for that one slice. You know, I want to share a story with you guys about something that happened when I was in high school. So in high school and in general, I always did well in my classes, academically speaking. And so in high school, I remember I was doing really, really well in math. And the head of our math department was an Asian American man. And what he said to me was like, he was like, you're just doing so well. Like I'm going to dub you an honorary Asian. And initially, I think I took it as a compliment. I was like 13 or 14. And I knew at that age, the stereotype of like, Asians are good at math, but I didn't internalize the piece of like, you're saying that black people are not good at math, right? I cannot be black and good at math, right? The two cannot live together. And when I told my parents, they were furious, but it was one of those things that you just, you, you hear these things, you internalize these things. And when you realize that they are wrong, you know, instead of thinking about like how wrong it was for him to, you know, insinuate that I couldn't be black and good at math at the same time and realizing that that was a product of white supremacy, it was sort of like, well, how dare he? 
why isn't this other person of color looking out for me? And like, maybe they don't have, you know, it just contributes to all of that tension that we believe that, that we see and we don't realize is seeded by others as opposed to like, you know, an endemic naturally occurring sort of competition between different groups of people. So Dr. Ho, I'm hoping you can maybe help us take a step back and just explain for our listeners, what is model minority myth? How does it function to oppress all people of color? Even when I think for a lot of Asians and Asian Americans, initially, it sounds like a compliment. It's like, you guys are doing it right. Yeah, so I I talk about this a lot when I do workshops that I have participants understand that if we think about a coin and on one side is the yellow peril, which is essentially the stereotype that Asians are a danger. And that's what we see emerging with COVID-19 and blaming China for this global pandemic is yellow peril, xenophobia, hatred of Asians, seeing them as a security threat. The other side is the model minority myth. And it sounds great. It sounds like, wait, Asians are this successful minority that have figured out the educational system and they've assimilated into U.S. society and they're really, you know, doing it right. But when you drill down and it's not very hard to drill down about all of the ways in which it's dehumanizing both to Asian Americans as well as to non-white Asian Americans, It was created, as you noted, by a white sociologist, and it was an article in which he was praising Japanese Americans and then not so subtly says, Black people should should pay attention to the Japanese, because it was specifically about Japanese Americans who'd been incarcerated during World War II, put into concentration camps, and then let out, like they were very docile subjects, and then they assimilated, and way to go, Japanese Americans, for not protesting being incarcerated and showing that you were loyal Americans. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it's so bad. And then, you know, he goes on to say, you know, essentially, why can't Black people be like the Japanese? So first of all, it was just not true, right? There are plenty of Japanese Americans that protested the illegal incarceration of themselves into concentration camps. And it is not true that they fully assimilated into American society as a way to, I mean, there's just all sorts of things that aren't true about that article. But the model minority myth is, is for one, trying to drive a racial wedge between Asian American and Pacific Islanders and Black, Indigenous, and Latino, Latina, Latinx people. So that's, of course, problem number one, because when you hear model minority and it's associated with Asian Americans, it's essentially saying that every other non-Asian minority is not the model. Yeah. And just, you know, the last point is it's also just not true, right? So in other words, it's also terrible for Asian Americans who are in lower socioeconomic brackets, who aren't good at math, who are not successful in this kind of neoliberal capitalist way. So refugee communities such as Burmese, Hmong, and Laotian have some of the lowest high school graduation rates, have some of the lowest English language literacy rates, lowest college graduation rates. And putting them into this kind of model minority box, it's really doing them a great disservice when we need to be disaggregating and looking at Asian ethnic groups And also within ethnic groups that seem successful, like Chinese Americans, there are undocumented Chinese Americans that are really struggling. Yeah, it's a great excuse to just sort of say, well, there's nothing more that needs to be done to advocate for Asian Americans in this country because they're good. So now we can like turn our attention elsewhere while at the same time, you know, exactly what you said, which is like, dear Black people, there is a wrong way to advocate for your equality. This is the right way you know, sit down, shut up, keep your head in a book and like, let's see if we reward you. It's just, it's so pernicious. And the fact that it was coming out of, after we incarcerated them illegally, look what they did with it. The audacity of that as a platform to speak from without addressing the fact that we unjustly incarcerated them. It's just, wow, I'm telling you, it's bold. It's the reinforced obedience that just really just makes me want to drive my head into a wall occasionally because it's so deeply painful and it just permeates throughout the generations in a way that I just can't even put into words. Totally. 
and internalized by many people as, you know, this is the way to do it. So Kim, I want to bring you in because, you know, we've been friends for a few years now. And I have to say that there are many things that distinguish you to me as a coworker. But when we first met, the thing that really stood out was your loud, proud allyship for me and other Black people and people of color in our office. And if I'm honest, that's not something that I can say that I've seen that much in the workplace. I can probably count on one hand the number of times that I've seen it or felt it so instantly and clearly from any coworkers, but you know, certainly you know, not from many Asian or Asian American coworkers. And as I've gotten to know you, I've come to learn more about where that comes from for you. And you've shared a few stories with me about your upbringing and your childhood that instilled this sense of solidarity for you and the importance of sort of the connection between Black and Asian communities. But can you just share that with our audience? How did you get to be so amazing? First of all, I am amazing through my friendship with you. I I genuinely believe that our friendship has made me a stronger advocate. I I definitely grew up with a set of values that I think has distinguished me from a lot of the APIs that I knew growing up. But I mean, I'm from Parma, Ohio, which if you're not familiar with it, it's a teeny tiny, very white suburb of Cleveland. And my mother was one of very few Asian people. And she always told me that the reason why I'm able to be here to learn to grow with my family is something that is fully indebted to Black Americans. She talks about how it was the Black Americans in the 1970s who actually called upon President Carter. It was this been like Bayard Rustin who literally said, you should free these refugees. You should give them economic opportunities because the Black struggle for freedom is intimately linked with the universal struggle for freedom. No one was having that kind of conversation in the 70s. And she always talks about how our entire life is literally a debt paid to the Black Americans who made it possible. And I've always just really believed that our our struggles are so intimately linked in that way. I remember growing up in Parma, and it's, it's an 87% white population with only about 2%, probably even less than that, Asians. But it was also only 3% African American. So when I had troubles with folks calling me a chink when I was walking through my middle school hallways, it was not the other white people that stopped them. It was the Black girls who said, that's disgusting. Asian is beautiful. And it would terrify our peers, the idea that we would be together and that we'd be able to support each other because ultimately we are stronger as a minority set. And I think that that's something that has definitely been a guiding principle for me in my friendships in my life and definitely professionally because gosh, are we so powerful together. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And shout out to your mom. (laughs) So Dr. Ho, when I was reading one of your recent essays entitled Anti-Asian Racism, Black Lives Matter and COVID-19, you talked about the untold story and the history really of cooperation and coalition between Black and Asian communities that Kim just hinted at as well. So I'm wondering if you can share a few of the stories that you shared in that essay with our listeners and why you think it is that we don't know or hear those stories as much as we should? Why instead we're hearing that most of the anti-Asian violence is being committed by Black people? Like, why is that what we're hearing? Yeah, our history, our knowledge is very whitewashed. And so it really begins in the K through 12 school system, whether that's private or public. And it begins with the resources that teachers have or don't have, as the case may be. And something that I think anyone listening can do, and I've been saying this in various workshops, we can all advocate for a better education for our children. And we can ask our school districts and demand that our school districts implement ethnic studies curriculum and have the resources to hire teachers who are equipped to teach this ethnic studies curriculum. Because believe me, you don't just want to not equip teachers to be able to accurately talk about very complex subject matter, but it's very necessary. So that's, I think, one reason why people don't realize that there's actually a very rich and vibrant history of Asian American and African American solidarity. So I'm just gonna share two names, Yuri Kochiyama, Anise, a second generation Japanese American woman. She and her family were incarcerated in 
concentration camp in Arkansas. When they were let out, she and her husband, Bill, who she met at that concentration camp, moved to New York City. They lived in Harlem and they became friends with a lot of black activists, which included Malcolm X. And from these salons that they had in their Harlem apartment really became radicalized into black civil rights movement work. And there's a very famous photograph of her holding Malcolm X's head in her lap the day that he was assassinated in the Audubon Ballroom. And she continued to fight for civil rights, human rights, and particularly alongside many Black activists and community organizers. So if you just Google her name, Yuri Kochiyama, you're going to discover a wealth of Asian American and Black American solidarity work that she did, and others too. So by amplifying her name, I'm not trying to take away from the other Asian Americans who worked alongside her, as well as Malcolm X. And then another name is Grace Lee Boggs. So for anyone who's listening in the Detroit area, you already know who she is. You know who Grace and Jimmy were. You know about the organizing that they did in their Detroit community that was a multiracial community, but also a very heavily Black community. And, you know, until the end of her life, she was a community organizer fighting for social justice and for for the rights of poor people. And in her neighborhood in Detroit, a lot of those people were Black. So again, those are just two names. I could name local people that I know who do this work every day. And there are people who, I mean, let us not forget that there are Black and Asian American families. Yes, There are Black and Asian American people who fall in love and they have families. So this isn't new. That's so, so important. You know, and and it shouldn't surprise us that in a white supremacist society, we're not really getting advertised the potential of what is possible when groups of marginalized people come together because that wouldn't be good for white supremacy, right? Like this is definitely a divide and conquer strategy. And it's so painful to see how many people of color have really bought into it hook, line and sinker and don't question it. And, you know, I have to say that I will admit that I've often found myself frustrated at times by some of my Asian and Asian American colleagues in the workplace who I felt like have been silent when Black and Latinx colleagues try to speak up about racism and bias that we're experiencing in the workplace. But yet I can't deny that I've also heard Black and Latinx colleagues express skepticism that their Asian colleagues are facing racism because we have bought into this idea that Asians and Asian Americans are good. They are accepted. They are where we're trying to get to and they're blocking us. And so I just think that it's just really true that we need to really interrogate what we've been told and what we've not been told and always assume that at any given point when marginalized groups are being dissuaded from organizing together, it is because of the power of that movement. And it is a white supremacist plot that we have to continually interrogate and, and be be really wary of. So, I mean, I think in the face of this very clear escalation of racism and violence against Asians and Asian Americans, I personally knew that I didn't want to be you know, a part of any sort of a silent majority. Oh, everyone feels bad about it, but no, we need to speak up. And I've been really gratified to see a lot of my non-Asian friends of color doing the same. But we've not arrived yet. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done in the name of greater cross-racial solidarity. I don't want to lose the most important thread here, which is that white supremacy is the root cause and that is the enemy. That's what we're fighting against. That's what we've been stifled by. That's what's killing us. So, Marla, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about how you see some of these dynamics playing out in corporate America in your work with executives of color who are navigating predominantly white spaces. What are some of the commonalities of that experience, whether it's, you know, Black women, Latinx women, Asian women, Indigenous women, women from Middle East and North Africa, whatever the case may be. And, you know, what do you hope that white people would start to pay attention to and push back on when it comes to the ways that racism is, you know, coming for people of color in the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You know, in my work, I really try to hold a sacred container for folks, right? For them to get really real and deep and say the things that they don't want to say to other people and go to those levels and those layers within themselves that are causing harm to themselves and others. And so, you know, in listening to everybody speak, a few things have just come to mind of 
examples that, you know, I'll keep confidentiality, but share some of the examples is, is that the nuance, while the nuance may be different in terms of the specific ways in which women of color are being treated in the workplace, the impact tends to remain the same. On the personal level, people feel stress, they feel a level of toxicity, their mental health is at risk, they have a level of anxiety that they're operating under, and it shows up differently, right? I, I think in the line with the model minority myth, a lot of my Asian clients will come in and say, they don't have anybody to talk to, right? Like the culture is, I'm, I can't really share it. I can share it with their intimate folks, but they're not going to share it at work. They're not going to share it with other people. And so, but they're still experiencing that real interpersonal violence. The Latinx women, the Black women, absolutely. I mean, I really see the impact on our nervous systems, on our bodies. And over time, the, those chronic levels of stress really deeply impact health outcomes, right? And, and I see that when I have been with someone for over a year, you can really see if they started in an organization in a healthy place, if that toxicity continues, there's a real big impact, right? So I think there's that level. From a real pragmatic place, lots of women of color within organizations are in the lower levels of the organization, entry levels, maybe some will get to middle management, but it is a pretty, there's a, there is a huge gap in upper levels, right? And so that I think is consistent. And I think in some industries, for example, in tech, the t- Asian diaspora is not necessarily seen as an underrepresented group. But when you start really looking at the numbers, they're still within the lower levels. They're not going into senior levels, right? So I feel like though what I see so much is that the interpersonal microaggressive acts that they're experiencing take a huge toll. And it feels like this catch-22 because it takes a, a huge toll. You start to not feel as present in your work and then you're docked because you're not as present in your work because you're having the impact of that oppression. And so therefore, wow, you really can't get up into those higher levels. That's one aspect. And sometimes it doesn't matter what you do. The research shows that women of color get much more behavioral aspects to the reviews than the impact of their work. Right. And that I see across the board. And there's different nuance. Right. So I'm saying for some of the Asian women, it's like, wow, we really need for her to speak up more. Right. She's just really quiet. We need for her to speak up more. Whereas for a black woman, it's like the way in which she's presenting, it's really coming across as aggressive. Right. Or for the Latinx woman, it's like she's really emotional. She talks with her hand. She's like, the way in which she communicates, it just, I feel like we need to bring it down a notch. Comes in hot all the time. Right. So it's nuanced, but the impact is still that you there's something wrong with you. We need for you to change your behavior. We need for you to fall in line. And we need for you to behave like the norm. And the norm is a white supremacy kind of male model norm. Right. So there's that. And so the the second part of your question around what white folks need to do, they have to do their own work. Right. They have to begin to develop a critical consciousness that strengthens their ability to see how our social identities how they interact with power and with social norms and how that is manifesting in the workplace, right? And what I'm finding is, you know, it's just some really clear things. Do some of your own work, right? Do your work around social identities. Do not allow your work to stay in book clubs and in just learning, right? Dr. Barbara J. Love has an amazing liberatory consciousness model that starts with awareness, but honest, there's a, there's a pre-step to the awareness is what is your vision? What is your vision for a liberated environment that where we all get to thrive? And then build your awareness, build your ability to be an analysis. And right now I feel like a lot of folks are in the awareness analysis, but they just stay there. They're like, I know there's issues. I'm going to read some books. I'm going to have some conversations with folks, but I stay in analysis paralysis because I'm afraid to get it wrong right? I'm afraid to be canceled. I'm afraid to say anything. So therefore I'm silent. And your silent then leads to you being complicit, right? And the, and the next part of that model is action and allyship. And what I love about the allyship and accountability step or element is that this is where you get to ask yourself, who am I going to be an allyship with and who am I going to be accountable to? And how am I going to hold myself accountable? Right. So each white person has to do that work on their own. But if they need support, 
reach out to a coach, reach out to accountability partner, right? Begin to, to look at what, what levels of power do you have within an organization and what are you willing to share to elevate and amplify the leadership of people of color? Right. Because right now I find that that is one of the biggest levers that we can access. But people experience it as loss of power. If I've got to share and I have to somehow lose something, mm, my allyship really stops there. Right. And I think the ask is for you to be in action and to be in a co-conspirator and really look in your teams. Who's speaking? Who is not speaking? Who's getting the choice of your projects that increase visibility? Who is not? Right. How can I, I could become accountable and, and, and be an ally with somebody and, and really learn about what they want out of their career and how can I support them in get, getting there? Right. So there's so many actions that folks can take, but you got to start. <laughs> you have to do something and it has to go beyond book clubs and conversations. It has to be start moving into action. I love that. I mean, I'm really glad that you talked about, I mean, this is exactly the topic of our entire podcast is really helping people to move to clear action because thinking about it is not it. Reading about it is not it you know, feeling sad about it. We go through the whole journey of like, great, you can be aware. You can also feel sad. You can feel empathy. But at some point you need to actually reflect on your own place in the society and how you've been complicit and how you've benefited. And then you need to move into those actions of how do I show up and act as an ally? And if no one in my life would identify me as an ally, I am not. You know, how would I show up and act as an anti-racist. And if no one besides you would identify yourself as an anti-racist, there's a great chance that you're probably not. You're not showing that proof. Therefore, no one is identifying you as such. And I just want to touch on one thing you said, which is that I have heard a lot of people say that like the thing that keeps them stuck is what you said, fear of being canceled, fear of saying the wrong thing, all of those things. But there's just a great Austin Channing Brown quote where she pushes back on that in a way that I think is amazing because she basically says, what you're actually afraid of is not the rejection of people of color. You're afraid of the rejection of white people. You're afraid of actually outing yourself as a white person who doesn't want to be complicit because there is a loss of white solidarity in that. And are you actually willing to risk breaking ranks with whiteness to do this work? And I just think it's so, so important to just acknowledge that piece because we can get lost in like PC politics, but there is a piece of it where white people do have to be accountable and say that, you know, I'm not willing at this point. I am prioritizing my, my comfort and I need to stop doing that. So Kim, you know, for you as an Asian American woman, what's it been like to live through this nightmare of a moment, both in the workplace and in your personal life? And what do you wish people who are not Asian would understand about what your experience has been like right now? Thank you for even asking the question. I mean, they're inextricably linked and especially working in social and, and conversation it is all about the idea that I essentially have to continue performing at this high level while being terrified. If I'm being completely honest with you, I am deeply scared and it is so much less for myself. But if you think about the Vietnamese culture and really the Asian American culture entirely, you will have generations in a single home and this level of deep respect for your elders. And now I'm just worried if you know my mother goes out to get a, her morning cup of coffee, will she return? Will she be harassed? And I, I have to somehow believe that I need to focus on my performance reviews when those kinds of fears are plaguing me. It feels insane. It feels like this odd focus of reprioritization that is just so painful. And it does inform my work. And I have to push for change because at the end of the day, I need to look my mother and my niece and my entire family in the eye and say, I did everything I could to change the way the culture speaks about you because that informs how I can protect you. And if I could say something to people who are not Asian and try to make them understand, I would just so like respectfully ask for them to just see me. And it sounds like such a minimum ask, but just a week or two ago, we on my team had this conversation called an inclusion 30 that is focused on having conversations about diversity and inclusion. And it was focused on the Asian American experience. And once we were open up to the room, someone had this insane comment that 
the rhetoric around China virus and Kung flu might have a positive impact because it brings together Asian people. And in that moment, I sat in silence for a good five minutes and I, I watched as you know, the solidarity pings rolled in and people reached out over email or text just making sure I was okay. And you almost wait for that moment for an ally to stand up and say that was wrong. And it was so painful because I don't think that people who are not people of color understand that if I have to speak out to tell other people that I'm important, that's how bad it is. And if you are to be an ally and truly believe that ally is a verb, if you had stood up in that moment and said something yourself, you save me and my people the mental anguish of having to do it myself. So please see us, feel our pain, have the empathy, and ensure that you are doing the work because there are moments like this that happen in smaller or, or larger versions every single day, but you have a choice to see us and do something on our behalf. And it saves us so much immense pain. And just so much labor and work. And the idea that people would message you but not speak up in the moment is just infuriating. If something has happened that you feel is bad enough that you need to check on a coworker of color, you probably should have said something in the meeting. And if you didn't, sometimes the moment misses you, you can say something in the next meeting or you can send an email. Don't seek out only the person of color to check on them. Again, I think this goes back to the bravery and the boldness to break with white solidarity when you need to, and to say that, hey, actually, I'm not going to be just one of the guys or one of the gals in this moment. I'm going to actually speak on this. And if that also ostracizes me for this moment, I'm willing to bear that. You know, it's just the, the last year has been just the most exhausting chapter of American life, but I think in some ways the most extraordinary and like unique chapter of American life that I can recall because at this moment, we are living in this extended moment of an awakening, right? We're living in this moment of people actually trying to pay attention and actually trying to consider what it would mean to show up differently. And, you know, I think when we're we're at a year plus at this point, right? We're, we're in an extended quarantine pandemic. You know, we have persistent anti-Blackness. We just had this, you know, another murder, Last week with Dante Wright, we had another mass shooting overnight. We're living through the Derek Chauvin trial. We're living through the spike of anti-Asian sentiment. Like, it's a lot. And so what Marla was saying earlier about the impact that that has on the bodies of people of color, not to mention their minds, their hearts, their spirits, how they feel, their ability to focus on work, but just like their bodies as well, I think is something that can't be you know overstated. And if you're not a part of the affected group, you probably are not reflecting on that and would, you know, encourage you to do so. So Dr. Ho, in your work and on social media, you've talked a lot about the interconnectedness of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Stop Asian Hate movement. How do you think that we can get closer to the kind of cross-racial solidarity that we need to see in these communities and get closer to, honestly, some of the historical examples that you've shared with us as well? Yeah, I think one of the first things is to really recognize that there have been historic tensions. So I know I gave examples of solidarity work. There's real anti-Black racism among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. So I don't want to sugarcoat that. I think that it's something that Asian Americans have to really address in their families, in their friendship networks, in their communities. I also want to say that there really is no such thing as the Asian American or the Pacific Islander or the Black community. So I get asked all the time, you know, to give my hot take on what Asian Americans think. And I'm really careful to explain to people that, yes, I have a certain level of expertise because I study Asian American culture and society and critical race theory, but I can really only show up as me. And I can tell you what my life has been like and try and lead by example. So I think the first thing, if we want to expect that people are going to be working in solidarity, is to acknowledge, like, Latasha Harlins, and if people don't know the name Latasha Harlins, please Google, that's very painful. There's a very painful chapter in L.A. between African Americans and Korean Americans, and by extension, Asian Americans. 
And there are Korean Americans that want to repair that harm. There are Korean Americans who are working really hard alongside their Black neighbors and friends and colleagues and community members to try and repair the harm of Latasha Harlan's murder. So I, I think acknowledging that and, and yeah, the videos of Black people attacking Asians has been t- terrible. And I don't excuse or condone that. One of the things that I try and make really clear, though, is that the real enemy is white supremacy. So, you know, again, Kamala, I'm so glad that you brought out those statistics, because one of the things is that we need to say very loudly and clearly that the anti-Asian racism that's happening and the violence is not happening largely by Black people to Asians, but it's what the media is showing us. And the media is showing us this because of the way that white supremacy operates to circulate viral videos of Black criminality and Black brutality. So we really need to say that loudly and clearly. I, as an Asian American identified person, need to say that loudly and clearly so that I can build trust with my Black friends and colleagues and community members and work on the common enemy. And the common enemy is white supremacy. So I think as long as we're really clear about that, then on a localized level, that's going to look different depending on where you live and depending on what skill set you have. And, and I just want to say something about what it's like to do this work because it's not comfortable. It's not, I mean, book clubs are great. If you want to post on social media, that's great. But if you're going to really show up and you know, roll up your sleeves and do this work, it is painful, uncomfortable work and mistakes will get made. I still make mistakes and I've been doing this for a long time because this is about trying and fumbling and then getting back up and apologizing and doing the work. And so it's like any other muscle. If you have not exercised your anti-racism muscle, it will hurt. But you'll get stronger and you'll make less mistakes and you'll find other people who will help train with you and work out that anti-racism muscle, right? So that eventually we can run the anti-racism Boston Marathon. Uh, I love that metaphor. I actually just, you know, had used a very similar one too, because, you know, there is this feeling that, oh my gosh, if there's discomfort, that means that we've done something wrong and that we need to abort this mission as soon as possible. And so, you know, what are you going to do about the fact that anti-racist education or anti-racist curriculum is like creating all this strife in school systems and in workplaces? And it's like, well, of course it is because we are not used to talking about race or anti-racism. So we are not going to be good at it initially. And those who have been able to opt out of conversations about race fully, who are mostly people who identify as white, really are not going to feel great in this moment. But that is not a sign that we need to stop what we're doing. That's a sign that we need to lean into it and get better and more committed to doing it. So Marla, I'd like to end with you. As we first met at a gathering for Black women in the tech industry when I was working at a different company prior, and you gave a speech that was at least in part about how important it is for women of color to intentionally invest in their own self-care because the world that we live in, professional spaces, personal spaces, all of it can be just so toxic to women of color. And, And when I think of what happened to the Asian women who were killed at that massage parlor, and honestly, how much of the anti-Asian violence that we've seen in the last year has been against Asian and Asian American women, it reminds me of how much just white supremacy and the patriarchy like really combine to be you know, particularly lethal for women of color. So it's not lost on me that all of us on this call now are women of color. And, you know, I'm wondering what self-care tips do you have at this moment for women of color who are really hurting right now? And how can we take care of ourselves and each other? That's a great question. Thank you so much for that. There's a term in my culture called desahogar. And the literal translation for desahogar means to undrown yourself. And and it's said usually in the context when someone is wailing, releasing, like that deep kind of soul cry and that needs to happen for us to be free. So my healing work, because I do a lot of healing circles with women of color, is centered around that access that we have got to find ways to undrown ourselves 
because white supremacy has us fucking treading water and it's exhausting. And we feel like we're constantly, you know, everything feels so heavy, right? On our mind, on our body and on our spirits. And so for me, it's the first thing is heal and community. Right. It's really I I have a contemplative practice. So it's I'm not saying that there aren't practices that that we might need as individuals, but my first is to heal in community. Right. Today I woke up just so I have not been sleeping all week. It's been a rough week with everything that's been going on. I did not watch the the video of Adam Toledo. I couldn't, but I woke up heavy this morning and just so tired. And I reached out to one of my group chat threads, right? It was like, sisters, I'm exhausted. It has been a rough week. Like it, it feels never ending. And just the, and I'll probably even tear as I'm talking about this, just all of the affirmation and support that I received from that was such a balm for me that once I got off that thread, I literally sobbed and I felt so much better. Right. So there is something about being in sisterhood, in community, and that we do not have to carry our burdens alone. Right. So, what can that look like? Connect with folks in real life if possible. And if not, connect with them over the phone, over text. Right. Really reach out when you need support. Try to have a practice that is your own. I have a really strong ancestor and meditation practice that I do daily. That for me is a huge source of my healing and power. Find something within your culture, right? That that feels like it's giving you something that's reminding you who you are, where you come from, and whose you are, right? That is important. And I feel like as women of color, we're we're in so many different fields. And as we continue to, to go into those places of work, if we are not tethered deeply to who we are, those spaces try to start swallowing us up and want us to be like them. And that is the force of white supremacy, right? Align with white supremacy and you're good. Because if you don't, there's hell to pay. And so it is critical that we remain tethered to those practices, those cultural practices, those spiritual practices, those physical practices that help us return to our wholeness, right? Therapy, y'all. Like get it. Therapy is a not a bad word. It is we need it. We need a space because so many of us are holding it that sometimes we need a space that we are paying somebody else to hold for us, right? And if we, and if you don't have the money to do that, look for resources and community centers and helplines to help provide that little pressure release because it is incredibly important. And then I'm a big person about going out in nature if it's possible, right? Like going out and just feeling the sun on my skin. I'm in California right now, so I'm blessed that I can just kind of go outside, right? But go lay down and feel held by the earth that we are, there's something so much greater than us and we are part of nature. And sometimes we are so disconnected from that, but we are part of nature. And so we need to return to that to also be able to do some deep healing work. And I want to read something that came in my inbox, Kamala, and I hope that's okay. It's a radical gratitude spell by Adrian Marie Brown. And it says a spell to cast upon meeting a stranger, comrade or friend working for social and or environmental justice and liberation. You are a miracle walking. I greet you with wonder in a world which seeks to own your joy and your imagination. You have chosen to be free every day as a practice. I can never know the struggles you went through to get here, but I know you have swum upstream and at times it has been lonely. I want you to know I honor the choices you made in solitude and I honor the work you have done to belong. I honor your commitment to that which is larger than yourself and your journey to love the particular container of life that is you. You are enough. Your work is enough. You are needed. Your work is sacred. You are here and I am grateful. Wow. 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 Well, we definitely won't be able to say it any better than that. So we're going to leave it right there. I just want to thank you women so much for joining me in this important conversation. I hope that each and every person listening today got something that helps them show up better going forward. And before we go, I would love if you each could tell everyone how they can follow you and your work on social. So Kim, do you want to start? I'd be happy to start. You can find me at Kim D. Trin, K-I-M-D-T-R-I-N-H on Instagram. Amazing. Marla? 
Yes, you can find me at Marla Teolia, T-E-Y-O-L-I-A, on Instagram. And then you can also go to our website at www.cultureshift.agency. And there's also a free grounding meditation for you when you log on that you can get into your inbox and hear my voice guiding you through an energy meditation to reclaim your power. Love that. Dr. Ho, how can people follow you and, and your work? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Jen Ho, D-R-J-E-N-H-O. Amazing. Well, that is it for this emergency off-cycle episode of From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. Anti-racism is a commitment that we make every day, and it cannot be selective. So make sure that you are exercising it intentionally in every space for the liberation of every group among us. As always... I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon. I want you to speak up, take care, and we will see you next season. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at Studio Pod. Edits were made by Noda Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time, 